Namaste, everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. All right, my guest today is Tuhin Sinha. Tuhin Sinha is a best-selling author, screenwriter. He's also a politician. Tuhin is an author of multiple books, uh, 11 if I remember correctly. You know, some of the books he's written in June 2021, it was Mission Sinjin. Uh, it was uh, set against the COVID pandemic. He's also written When the Chef Fell in Love. But today we're going to be talking about his latest book, uh, The Legend of Birsa Munda. Tuhin, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, Kushal. It's an absolute honor to be on your uh... Charvak podcast. In fact, I have seen a couple of episodes and for a writer, God lies in the details. So the kind of detailing which you put into your shows is quite phenomenal. Thanks Thank a lot. You. So Twin, let's start with this. Now, um, Birsa Munda, as as everybody knows, is a, you know, a, a great character from Indian folklore, from Indian history. Uh, but is someone that you know, if we were to look at it, uh, you know, from a historian's perspective, as in, you know, how history is written in a classical way. We have X character did this. These are the books. This is the author that wrote that. So when it comes to a lot of written material, obviously Birsa Munda and, and a lot of uh, material on him is, is all over the place. So, so for my first question to you was, why did you choose such a challenging project? That where the, the character involved historically, actually, you know, a lot of material needs to be searched out. And uh, so why did you maybe decide, okay, I need to take this project up? Well, honestly, Kushal, Kushal, um, Birsa Munda is my journey inwards. So when you, tra- when you traverse the world, when you've written about everything, you, you, you know, it was my, uh, I, I decided I should write something which is closer to me and yet which I have always been distanced from. So I grew up in Jamshedpur, which, uh, was barely 100 kilometers away from the epicenter of Birsa Munda's revolution. So there were places in Jamshedpur in the adjoining city of Ranchi that were named after Birsa Munda. In fact, uh, Ranchi's Birsa Munda airport is very famous. Then in Orissa, you have a world-class hockey stadium now by the name of Birsa Munda. And yet, in all my growing up years during the 80s and the 90s, when I would want to know a little more about the icon, unfortunately, you know, there was a, a huge dearth of information or authenticated information about uh, Birsa Munda. So um, I think that inquisitiveness had remained uh, unsatiated for a very long time. Come to mm. 2014, I think after Narendra Modi ji became the prime minister of the country, there was a complete transformation in the way we approached history, in the way we looked at some of these subaltern heroes. So I don't think any other prime minister has invoked Birsa Munda as much as Prime Minister Modi has done. So there is a curiosity. There was a natural curiosity building up, not just in me, but in a lot of, uh, you know, the urban population about these subaltern heroes. So I had been meaning to write about Birsa Munda for a very long time. And in fact, uh, due to a hectic, uh, you know, career across two or three different streams and a growing level of interest in politics, uh, somewhere I wasn't finding the time to do justice to a subject of this uh, magnitude. So while I had my notes ready, while I had a plan ready, uh, a structure ready, I wasn't able to put that to paper. And that is when the lockdown happened and I decided I would not find a better time than this. Uh, 
you know, Ankita Varma is my co-author on the book. Mm-hmm. She has written a couple of books, again, uh, very nationalist in her thought process. So she did the first draft. And I, well, I largely worked on the structure. But I think the first draft was just the, the you know, I think it was just the start. Most, uh, most of the times what happened, what used to happen with me was that the first draft would be the final draft for, for most of my books, of all, for almost all my books. But here I decided that, you know, I mean, I, I became so possessive about the character that that is when the rewriting really began. And it took almost a year of rewriting, uh, a year of revisiting the structure of the book. I think that also is partly because writing about a historical character like Pirsamunda entails a lot of responsibility. And since I am not a historian, uh, you know, I consciously tried to play it safe. It's historical fiction. When I say historical fiction, while every attempt has been made to be honest to the character of Pirsamunda, some amount of liberty has been taken uh, insofar as the secondary characters are concerned. So some situations are deliberately um, dramatized. But that also is to make the book and the narrative more palatable to the younger generation. But yes, coming back to the, the topic, I think subaltern history is something which, uh, which um, has never got its due. In fact, uh, it was uh, an entirely new discovery for, to, for me that a, subal- a parallel subaltern freedom movement has been active in the country from the 1770s which never got its due or which never got reported uh, or documented the way it should have been. And many of these tribal mutinies had actually, had actually, you know, were, were, uh, sort of played a sort of a precursor to the 1857 War of Independence. So starting with Tilka Maji and Raghunath Mahato, the earliest known tribal warriors who were, um, again, you know, um, Tilka Maji was in the uh, lived in the area of present-day Bhagalpur. Raghunath Mag- Mahato was in the area of present in one of the districts of the present-day Charkhand. But simultaneously, from early 1900s, sorry, 1800s, one would see simultaneous tribal revolutions across the country. Whether it was Kerala, whether it was the northeast, whether it were the Bheels in Rajasthan, whether it were um, the Gonds in Maharashtra or Andhra and Telangana. So many of these tribal mutinies laid a foundation for the larger battles which that we were to witness, uh, you know, towards the end of the 19th century and early 20th century. Now, this is a very important part that you've spoken about, you know, and, and let's let's build on this a little more now before before we get into anything further. This the struggle in India when it comes to subaltern history, it's it's actually very real. And uh, uh, but but then if I was to ask you, who's to blame for that? Why did the historians of our past? It's not look, we 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 have attained independence now for more than seventy years, mm-hmm. and you know, what what do you think went wrong then? In, in our history taking or well, in our you know, history narration? Uh, there are two reasons. One, history has always been written from the point of view of rulers uh, or the kings. So letting go of subaltern heroes, 
you know was a natural uh, i think was a natural thing which which uh, most historians would not bother about also during the lifetime since like i again mentioned history has always been written been written from the point of view of rulers these people were always regarded as rebels so it was only natural for you to ignore them and in fact uh, there is an uncanny resemblance in the lives of all almost all of these characters the importance of their revolutions dawned upon people only when they were gone for instance in in the case of birsa munda the 1899 uh, early 1900 revolution a uh, uh, 15 day intense revolution was primarily against um, father hoffman or you know the the conversion unleashed by father hoffman and the resultant chaos it had led to in the adivasi society so while birsa munda died in june 1900 it is worth noting that in 1908 when one of the most path breaking reforms were enacted for adivasis which was called the chhota nagpur land tenancy act which which accorded or which gave certain um, land holding rights to adivasis which they had been fighting for for decades it was father hoffman who was instrumental in making it happen so it is it is uh, it would be far fetched to imagine that he would he was a transformed man after after the revolution of birsa munda in 1899 1900 perhaps the most plausible rational or reasoning for it is that he realized the importance of uh, birsa munda's re- revolution he realized uh, the kind of um, the kind of angst that was building up in the adivasi community and that revolution of birsa munda was an important catalyst in making it happen so the the importance of both most of these characters was visible only after their death and you know when when primary sources of information are few it becomes difficult to go back to their contacts and their acquaintances and to to revisit history because like i said they were always ignored during their lifetime so you know as an author writing an historical fiction on on and because it's just a coincidence here you know even on monday i had a uh, chat with an author of a historical fiction and i wanted to know your view as a writer also so how how, how was the process then when you know as you've said you know, going back in history and finding out the yeah. story of birsamunda is so tough then then how how were you trying to do justice to the characters then so there were a couple of books which uh, i managed to lay my hands on one is by mr k s singh he had served as an ias officer in bihar and jharkhand and in fact jharkhand was a part of bihar in those days in 1950s and 1960s and he had served in in some of those districts uh, of southern bihar now jharkhand where birsa munda's revolution was very active so in fact his book had a lot of uh, prime uh, first hand information since he had spoken to people a lot of people who were involved or were direct descendants of uh, people who participated in that uh, revolution there was another book which was partly so i you know briefly referred to these books i spoke to a couple of people from those villages for instance um, karia munda who was one of the longest serving lok sabha mps uh, again you know uh, 
is from a village which adjoining village of Birsa Munda. So I've had one conversation, long conversation with him. I spoke to a lo- couple of local journalists belonging to the tribal community. See, it was very important for me to get the the structure of the story right. Like for me as a as a writer with 10 books behind me now, what I largely do is try to build on the the, the start, the middle and the end. And uh, over here, obviously, it was also important for me to to kind of figure out which are the portions I need to be absolutely true to and which are the ones I can uh, improvise on a bit or dramatize it to to make it more palatable for for, uh, the younger readers. So I think it was a... In, in that sense, um, there was a fair amount of mathematics which went into the planning of this book, apart from uh, drawing upon the information that was available. But I guess, like I said, at the end of it, it's a craft. Uh, since I am not a historian, somewhere it's also a blessing in disguise because I, you know, I don't have some of those ad- attendant uh, burdens of uh, um, being true to every sentence or every fact mentioned in the book. Some of the incidents have been dramatized, but like I said, the larger messaging uh, is what is important. And the story of Birsa Munda ideally should reach as many homes as possible because, you know, I'll tell you something very interesting. When I spoke to some of my friends in Mumbai about the book, first first spoke uh, to them about this book that I'm bringing out, a couple of them were actually confused whether Birsa Munda is a mythological character or a historical character. So apart from that zone, apart from uh, Charkhand, Bihar and certain parts of Madhya Pradesh, Orissa, I do feel there is still a lot of ignorance about this brilliant, magnificent character. And if the book uh, tends to you know, serve the cause of mainstreaming the character somewhat more, it would have served its purpose. So now let's get into the book, uh, So. I want to focus now on part one. Obviously, your book is in three parts, but part one. Now, and obviously, we can connect it to a contemporary, a couple of uh, a contemporary case also. But so in part one, without giving a lot of the plot away, uh, you touch upon aajkal bada sensitive hai, bada topic, ji, conversion. Ka. I mean, either you convert into something or out of something or you convert out of something and then go back into the same thing that you converted out of right and and you you talk about this uh this this tussle and this this struggle uh, in the part one but i want to link it to something that recently happened and in fact you know you had uh, contested the view of the jharkhand cm where so there are two aspects to it and they are all connected to this whole, you know, proselytization right. and conversion. So, you know, this, the Jharkhand CM had said that Adivasis aren't Hindu. Now, uh, you know, w- in one direction, we have this narrative to him that Adivasis aren't Hindu, right? And on the other thing is, there is an entire uh, industry and I use this word with full mm-hmm. responsibility. And these are my words. I don't want them to be attributed to you. Um, There is an entire industry that is there that wants to convert the Hindu. And the funny thing is, both the people say who belong to the same side say the same thing. So sometimes I feel like decide कर लो हैं कि नहीं है Hindu. अगर Hindu नहीं है तो convert क्यों कर रहे हो? 
so 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 how did you manage because when i was reading your book it was you know i have to appreciate that you know you've done justice to the issue because what i found was it's like you know you did not shy away from also showing the side where look maybe we did a bad number on these people societally and um and maybe that's why it create, uh, created a problem in society so even you know so uh, i think that's a typical dilemma that i also live with because as a politician i subscribe to an ideology but then as a writer i'm more humane in understanding any character and for me like uh, when you create a character a character is like creating a baby so somewhere you you know the onus of molding that character is upon you and when that character behaves in an irrational manner without a reason then i think you know it is also incumbent upon the author to explain why the person is behaving in an you know why your character is behaving in an irrational manner so i think you know weaving my author instincts into my ideology is both uh, a challenge as well as a boon for me uh but it's a fact you know like uh, see uh, i think just to explain the whole uh, manner in which british or britishers operated in these tribal hamlets or villages now these tribal hamlets were often ignored by the british administration directly so they used to exercise control via two devils one is the zamindars and the other were missionaries so i think from 1853 onwards with a very concerted plan with certain targets being given to these missionaries missionaries were actually planted in in certain remote areas of the country and tribal and jharkhand or the present day jharkhand then bengal province was one of the key areas where certain targets were given to them that every year you need to convert a certain number of adivasis because that was plan a to culturally sub- subjugate the adivasi population and the plan b was to you know ec- economically empowerish uh, them which anyway the zamindari system was doing so it was but natural for an average poor adivasi to go through that dilemma or temptation of conversion so in fact birsa munda's uh, father had actually co- converted way before he did in fact uh, and in, and you know like many of them would actually convert come back reconvert <laughs> because see when ideology for a large section of the population tends to be secondary the primary battle is of livelihood is of food so birsa munda converted in 1886 he was baptized just before um, he was sent to the christian missionary school in in chaibasa to study and then by 1880 he equally got disillusioned with the whole thing when he realized that a section of the the fathers or uh, you know the christian missionaries in his school were kind of trying to trivialize or uh, insult uh, the adivasi practices in at every you know given opportunity and then he rebelled and came out of it but when you look at the conversion thing today the sad part is that post 1947 post our attaining independence it is not just about the adivasi population it is it is about all minority communities there was one political party which thought that national interest be doomed it is important to increase the population of minorities somehow in the country give them all kinds of sops and they would be true to you during the elections so i don't know where the congress party 
drew its thought process from maybe it was a fundamental or an inherent dislike or uh, you know an inherent uh, apology about being hindus or whatever but this practice was encouraged across the country in the in assam and, and uh, bengal uh, illegal migration from bangladesh or you know previously east pakistan was virtually institutionalized and the result is very visible in areas of assam today and in areas of bengal similarly even for the tribal population i think you know they never uh, you know felt uh, hindu the hindu community needed to own the tribals i don't know where the congress party got this thought process from but the the tribal community was virtually abandoned with the result that they became vulnerable to two adverse influences over the years one was uh, the naxal movement i would say sections of the tribal communities not the whole of it one was the naxal movement and the other was increased law towards conversion and in fact some politicians also encouraged it institutionalized it Hemant Soren, in fact, made a recent statement, which you know, like you pointed out, and which I had contested in a Harvard conference. He went on to say that Adivasis were never Hindus; they were, uh, in fact, um, they will never be. But the fact is, I can show you a, a very exhaustive research paper. I can show you multiple other sources of information where the worship of Lord Shiva has been intrinsic to to Adivasi faith. so in fact uh, you know adivasis for thousands of years have been worshiping the idols or you know carvings of uh, shiva on on temples and it is believed that the the upper caste brahmans only brought you know you know uh, brought them to temples as shankar so um, there are mul- mul- you know multitudes of temples in jharkhand itself where you see and since i have grown up over there i have been you know i have seen adivasis lining up uh, during shivrat mahashivratri festival for for uh, one whole night lining up for for a darshan uh, before the mahashivratri pujan so i think it was very irresponsible of the jharkhand cm to make the statement which i contested but a similar practice is visible even in andhra pradesh in fact uh, you know there are party karyakartas who have been very active and they say that jagan reddy has been in trying to virtually institutionalize uh, conversion there are um, official channels which have been activated and so it's a sad situation where for petty vote bank politics some politicians have tried to tamper with religious and cultural um, demography when it comes to you know uh, on on a more factual point when it comes to adivasis following certain distinctive practices like nature worship like worshiping uh, you know they believe in a god their their primary god uh, is god singabonga you know they invoke god singabonga in many of uh, their practices or every time they have to start uh, something auspicious so i would say many of these slightly innate or slightly distinctive practices are on account of the habitation you know for instance if tomorrow you have to start living in a jungle your habits would change you would start worshiping certain plants a lot more than you you do now but 
in some way or the other, the same practices are also inherent in the Hindu religion. For instance, you know, the use of Tulsi, the worship of uh, sun god, they are all, you know, very intrinsic to Hindu religion. And that is where I don't see uh, any difference between uh, the Sanatan practices and the practices of uh, Adivasis. You know what the funny thing about this entire episode is that I mean, we've had this discussion many times on the podcast, uh, you know, when I've hosted different guests is that who is a Hindu, first of all? You know, there is one scholarship in the, which is coming from the Indology departments that says, oh, Hinduism is actually a new concept, right? It is, there is something called new Hinduism. They call it neo-Hinduism. It's a hypothesis, a proper academic hypothesis. And, and basically what it stands for is everything that is bad in Indian society, that's what Hinduism is. Then if somebody was to go out to them and tell them, okay, then what about yoga? What about these philosophies? They are all, you know, they will say that's not Hinduism. These are localized philosophies or Shramanism or the influence of Shramanism on Hinduism. And and so there, there is this school of thought that says, oh, tribals are not Hindus. But then if you ask them to define what a Hindu is, they will also not define it. And I'll tell you what interesting thing happens is so, so we live in this world where uh, it's not a word that I've used. I came across this word used by others. They call it Operation Olympics. Now, what happens is in the Operation Olympics, it depends when when there is an intercaste problem. That mm-hmm. time, the tribal is not a Hindu. Uh, the Hindu is the, you know, the, the Brahmin and the Brahmin and the tribal are fighting. So mm-hmm. Hinduism is suppressing the person who is not Hindu. But Change the scenario. Let it be somebody from another religion. Let's say Christianity, Islam. Mm -hmm. Just then the tribal suddenly becomes a Hindu. Then it is never said an Adivasi had a problem with a Muslim. Mm -hmm. So even in, you know, in our discourse, it's actually funny that we've not even decided who is a Hindu. What is the qualifying criteria to be a Hindu? It's almost as if the qualifying criteria na. It changes its colors like a chameleon. argument But don't you think it's about time that, you know, the Supreme Court was very clear in India. The Supreme Court realized mm-hmm. that Hinduism is a very varied, you know, faith and belief system. So they followed the model, which is very logical in my view, which was the negation. So anybody who's not a Muslim, Christian, Parsi, mm-hmm. Jew in India, in the legal sense, is a Hindu. That's what they said. And and you can have your Panth, you can have your Sikh Panth, your Baud Panth, you can have your Vaishnavite Panth, mm-hmm. you can have your Shaivite Panth. And, and the Supreme Court was very, the Supreme Court has smartly up hand jadli hai, dekho, bada complicated mamla hai, hum answer iska. And, but what do you do in such a case where you have active proselytization? Look, there are two aspects to proselytization naturally. There is proselytization out of your free will where you genuinely believe that the religion you were originally belonging to for whatever reasons. And maybe if you're a tribal and you feel oppressed by the current religious structure and you want to get out of it. And I think people should have a right to leave that religion. But then there is this predatory form of proselytization and i think you bring it out beautifully in the book you you don't bring out one aspect you bring out both the aspects you bring out the the predator and prey aspect of uh, the proselytizer and the proselytized 
and you also talk mm-hmm. about how you know there are these structures within society that do oppress these adivasis they do oppress these people and they do feel sometimes they are kedar jaye yahan pe idhar khai udhar khua kind of a situation mm-hmm. so what do you think about this overall narrative itself when it comes to the definition itself of a hindu see it's a um i completely like i said the uh, the supreme court has actually made it very easy for us to define who is a hindu but you know um the effort on the other side the malafide effort on the other side is to somehow project that the connotation hindu itself is a political word you know which is which is far far from true maybe hindu the word hindu was more mainstreamed starting uh, 1914 1915 16 onwards when we could see the visible result of uh, islamic radicalization or the accumulation of uh, radical forces on the other side so maybe you know uh, a lot of um, the the different uh, uh, you know sanatan dharma or all the different followers of different forms of hinduism got together and the usage of the word became mainstreamed in every sense of the word but hinduism has existed since eternity you know i you don't need uh, in fact Uh, you know that is the whole irony that i'm pointing out aaj jis cheez ko lekar hemant soren ji kehte hain ki ye log hindu nahi hain hindu wahi hai hum surya bhagwan ki prarthna karte hain hum chandrama ki prarthna karte hain hum wo sare hum to samajhte hain ki paudhon mein bhi jaan hoti hai so a hindu is is uh, you know like any natural in- inhabitant of this land is a hindu but unfortunately when you have uh, political forces trying to increasingly discriminate at every point first you know they had uh, they had issues with the word hindu itself like you pointed out but now in the last 7 years they also have evolved a lot now they are very fine they are absolutely fine with the usage of the word hindu now they want to create a distinction between hindu and hindutvadi so maybe you know a time will come as they are gradually evolving over the years maybe you know 10 years down the line when you have a, somebody like yogi at the helm of affairs maybe they will also accept hindu plus hindutva and maybe you know uh, find out a new word they can demonize but i think you know uh, largely i feel uh, the first prime minister of the country was in a very important and a crucial position to set the socio cultural narrative of the country and that is where i think the first prime minister who was in office for a good 17 years was rather defensive about india's innate cultural identity that is where most of the problems or most of this confusion emanates from and unfortunately that you know that confusion has only prevailed or only got magnified over the years because you know you have a dimwit uh, a uh, descendant of that clan who now you know on a or in a rally which is supposed to be against price hike he you know delves ad nauseum on uh, hindu versus hindutvadi but i think the larger issue remains the same if you look at it see from a political perspective some hyphenations had become very common in indian politics for example dalit muslim for example uh, you know it could be uh, tribal muslims why because at every opportunity certain political parties try to wean away 
the weaker minority sections away from the larger Hindu Samaj. So this demonization is largely political and I'm, you know, like in the last seven years, a lot has changed. Still, there are forces which are out to, to, to uh, resurrect that fallacious narrative. But I think the worst is behind us. Unless, you know, we goof up and we become apolo apologetic about our identity in the years to come. I think the worst is still behind us. And I think the biggest answer to uh, to the whole question of who is a Hindu or whether Adivasis are Hindu or not is the census of India. You know, every few years, the Indian government takes the copious effort of going to remote corners of India, talking to people and actually finding out their religious affiliations and identity identities. And look, majority of tribals still call themselves Hindus. <laughs> so, I mean, are they also wrong now? <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 I don't get it. So they are also wrong. There seems to be this big conspiracy that's going on where even they don't have the agency to call themselves Hindu. But I want to talk about one more thing to him with you because this, you, you brought it out so beautifully. It's the psychology of the conversion. You know, you, you have that small scene and, and I and I apologize for letting it out, but I have to. You know, you write about the scene where they are trying to practice their the characters in the in the book are trying to practice their local traditions. And the missionary says, These are pagan traditions. These are not your traditions. These are not the traditions that should a, a good Christian should follow. And and so what do you think is the psychological impact of such kind of a conversion where, where you know, practices that have been with you for thousands of years are suddenly being taken away from you? And do, and do you think that also creates a resistance inside the community too? You know, um, there are two aspects of it. One is the aspect of the person converting and the other who gets converted. So let me let me delve upon the person who gets converted first. See, I do believe, because I still believe in the old uh, world of natural goodness, and I, I do believe that most people are uh, naturally good. They're not bad people. So I'm sure, you know, most of the people who convert or have converted in history must have had a pressing need or a you know, uh, a situation where they could not have chosen otherwise. That's my belief, because uh, most Indians are are possessive about their cultural identity. So if somewhere over the years, the, the conversions have increased somewhere, we also need to look inwards and find out why that has happened. You know, just to take a detour, Dharmendra ki ek movie mein gana hai. Hum bewafa to hargiz nahi the, par hum... Uh, I'm just forgetting the lyrics. So somewhere I feel the zamindari system was so oppressive that that had done a lot of harm. And, and in fact, the caste system also. So, somehow in the last 70 years, Ambedkar's vision, his mission of a caste society is something which nobody has worked upon in honesty. And it is a little sad also that even in Uttar Pradesh elections now, somewhere caste influences have become active once again. So I, I do feel that, you know, somewhere we also need to look, look inwards. The Hindu Samaj needs to look inwards on why so many conversions actually happened. 
and somewhere we need to correct those things. Now, coming from the point of view of the person converting these people, see, here are most of these are very professionally missionaries. So when I say professional missionaries, they have been, you know, in a very corporate fashion, they have been given certain targets. So now, while in my book, I've spoken about Christian missionaries, I'm sure Zakir Naik practices the same thing when he has those videos out uh, despising Hindu gods. Because he is also somewhere uh, working towards a certain target-driven conversion factory. So, you know, for these people to be wily, for these people to be manipulative is understandable. But I think the larger, our larger concern still should be on how we can retain these people. And that is where I have gone a step beyond. You know, like I recently, uh, I very humbly wrote a letter to Honorable Prime Minister where I have appealed for Bharat Ratna to be conferred upon Bersagunda. Why? Because, you know, somewhere it may be a symbolic, it may not go beyond a symbolic gesture now, almost 122 or 121 years after his death. But that Adivasi community needs to be given a sense of belongingness, which goes beyond an occasional mention. So that is where, you know, creating the, the biggest war memorial at Dumbari Hills, where, uh, where Birsa Munda's final battle was fought between his men and uh, the Britishers on, on the 9th of January, and where hundreds and hundreds of uh, Adivasis were massacred on those hills. That hill is still a very far-flung area. If one creates the nation's biggest war memorial in that place, that place, if Birsa Munda is conferred Bharat Ratna, some of these gestures will go a long way in according a sense of belongingness to that community, which they haven't got. See, the challenges uh, which the community faces at this point of time when India is a largely market-driven society is very different. I think they need to be at the forefront of our digital revolution. The, the, the products, the, the agri products, the Adivasi products need to make it across the world. And for that, to shift the focus towards uh, the Adivasi Samaj also being a part of the market-driven e- economy, which the rest of the country is, I think these gestures will go a very long way in developing and helping us, in helping the Samaj develop that uh, sense of belongingness. But still, don't don't you think? Uh, I get it. I I get the idea of may, maybe you know meeting and creating such national heroes does does uh, does do that. But then, <clears throat> but don't you think we should also maybe as a society, like I always say, there would only be exploitation of certain lines in the form of faults if they existed. So. If there is this sort of proselytization existing amongst us and amongst our society, don't you think we also have to do some introspection? Also, the economic failures of the previous governments uh, also has to be accounted for that, you know, whether we like it or not, yes, there is a certain aspect which the missionaries go inside and, you know, they do sometimes do benefit the tribal okay, communities let's also. Come to the solution. Let's come to the solution. Can reconversion happen? I think that is the larger idea which ideally we should be discussing. And yeah. in fact, Arya Samaj um, tried that effectively to a large extent during the later part of the 19th century. But somewhere post-independence, I think uh, there were no institutional efforts in that direction. 
but if one were to look at adivasi population or or the converted population reconversion reconverting and reconverting or out of their own volition what is it that they would be expecting from us so largely to my understanding they would be expecting the the promise of a casteless society and in fact you know i have grown up in bihar where in 80s you'll find it very interesting that most of the progressive families which includes which included the uh, upper caste families had gift you know started giving up their surnames they were so fed up of uh, the caste system which uh, which had existed and which which had virtually uh, entangled the society and lead impeding its uh, progress and growth that most of the upper caste families included had started giving up their surnames unfortunately 30 years down the line what i'm seeing is a slight reversal of the situation where you know people are once again becoming more conscious of their caste identity and till this caste identity exists in the society unfortunately you know i don't see uh, the converted population trying to even making an effort to reconvert out of their own volition now recently tejasvi surya had made this uh, made this uh, you know had said this on in a public forum and he was criticized for it but largely if the idea should be to create to to do away with some of those impediments to do away with some of those fallacies in the hindu samaj which were responsible for uh, you know the conversion outwards in the first place if we can attempt to do away with them i don't see a problem out of people genuinely wanting to re convert because many of the muslims many of the christians you know maybe their percentages would still be low but they are increasingly accepting of their hindu cultural identity and i think somewhere uh, this effort needs to be a little more subtle than with statements like 80 20 honestly if you if you ask me yeah and not only that i i have always found this reconversion uh, hitch very funny and the criticism of reconversion very funny because if you can convert out of point a to point b why can't you convert back into point a from point b i mean you change your mind uh, or you're only allowed to change your mind once on one subject it, i i never get that it's like uh, and how can somebody else decide what that person is going to do like I, i'm very clear i uh, uh you can convert out of hinduism you can convert back into hinduism you can you know believe in pastafarianism for all i care i mean it's your choice i mean it has to be left to the person yeah as long as it's not fraudulent there is no fraud involved there is no financial allurement there are no threats involved that that is a separate issue but now let us talk about the other aspect of your book that that you know you there was this tussle between obviously the christian missionary and birsa munda and the extended samaj but there is also this tussle between the state obviously in this case it was the british state and the zamindars as such and the taxes that they impose on this and uh, so so let us talk about that do you i I've, i've always been look i lean libertarian i always like a smaller state but obviously india is not in a situation where we can go towards that side so so where do you see what how do you see the role of the indian state let's say as far as you are concerned in the upliftment of you know the the scst communities sir especially the adivasi samaj see like i said i mean in the last 70 years most of the adivasi samaj was ignored uh, 
there were so i think uh, what we what uh, in the last 7 years what this government has done is to fulfill the basic necessities which which a large section of the population was deprived of for example when you talk about uh, and, and and you know i'm not uh, treading into the political zone but it's a fact when you talk about a nal se jal program benefiting 5 crore plus villages i think a significant percentage of those homes would be tribal homes when you talk about 5 uh, crore people not, not having had electrical connections electricity connections in the homes till 2014 and now having uh, attained it again a significant percentage of that population would be tri- the tribal population so i think the bringing the adivasi population to a same playing field as the rest of the rural population was a priority in the first place and now that it has been taken care of i think somewhere the adivasi samaj also needs a contemporary cultural icon now since we are not uh, since this is not the age of the britishers where you can have another freedom fighter uh, manufactured overnight taking the legacy of birsa munda forward the idea should be to to ensure that the next big digital entrepreneur comes out of the you know of some adivasi zone and in fact uh, you know even though uh like i have also been critical of hemant soren on the show i have recently been acquainted with one of the very interesting things which he has done to empower adivasi children now there is another freedom fighter adivasi freedom fighter by the name of uh, jaypal munda if you've heard of him jaypal munda was the only adivasi representative in the constituent assembly and some of his speeches are so evolved they're so fantabulous they're so layered that you know i i would consider him in the same league as br ambedkar but again we don't we haven't heard of him so much why because it was a natural tendency to ignore adivasi voices irrespective of how erudite or irrespective of how learned he may have been so Jaypal Munda was educated abroad because he was he was adopted by a uh, by a British family. They sent him abroad to study, and then he came back and uh, was one of the most evolved scholars of his time. Now, in the name of Jaypal Munda, what Hemant Soren has done is that he's sending five children, young Adivasi kids, abroad on a scholarship where they would be studying for a period of one year or two years. I'm not privy to the details, but I think that is an innovative move. and since adivasi upliftment should go beyond party lines you know while i'm critical of his other thing of uh, not accepting uh, adivasis as hindus this particular scholarship program where five adivasi children have been sent abroad for a couple of years i think these are things which we need to focus more on because if you ask me in the next 10 years if we can pro- if we can produce the next big digital entrepreneur from an adivasi community and somebody who has lived in poverty and uh, and uh, uh, lived a life of depri- deprivation i think that would be the the real uh, you know benchmark of success for the community in fact i'll share some of my experiences of the role of the state so you know i was involved in the sansad adarsh gram yojana while i was working in two villages you know these villages were all you know scheduled tribe villages very few scheduled castes also there's 99% scheduled tribe villages in uh, palgar um okay. in fact 
it's with that then that i realize many points about how the state actually plays an active role in the upliftment of the you know the, the mm-hmm. tribal communities is uh the state budget that is allocated it it has a certain percentage of the budget which goes directly mm-hmm. according to the percentage of the tribal population in that state and that percentage is directly allocated for that and you know there were wonderful wonderful um uh, schemes like i remember in maharashtra there was something called the thakar bappa scheme now what the thakar bappa scheme is that you can do a particular activity of x lakh rupees and mm-hmm. just pick so you can make a rural road rural village road you could maybe put up solar lamps you could put up x mm-hmm. you could put up y and they have these limited and you know there were schemes for providing bicycles there were schemes for providing school uh, school accesses and there. so so that's when i realized it's not that the indian state is not involved what i realized in was it was the communication of the schemes and and sometimes it is there that you know a lot of time the communication and the execution does not happen but i personally was to my utter shock because mm-hmm. i was just an but ignorant urban dweller till 5 7 years ago there have always been wonderful schemes but like rajiv gandhi had said once uh, out of every 1 rupee that were released via these schemes only those only around 5 paise would reach the ultimate beneficiary and this had gone on for far too long you know i again like i said i mean i don't have a political intent uh, at least on this show uh, to to take the discussion in that direction but the moment there is a non bjp government the level of corruption even in the funds allo- allocated to the poorest of poor is enormous so you know i think that is something which has been arrested to a large extent in the last 7 years because when very limited amount of money which is meant for the adivasi samaj actually reaches them obviously the result would be truncated the result would be you know maybe half of half as effective as it would otherwise have been true and, and and i think it is changing i mean i i remember when i worked in that 2 to 4 year period in those villages mm-hmm. you know i learned so much and and the results were there all you need is you need someone to follow up and and the results mm-hmm. are there i mean the kind of things we were able to achieve over there for the tribal communities was just fantastic one more aspect uh, before you know maybe we can wrap up the that the one thing i loved about your book was the way you you brought out the spirituality and the spiritual aspects or or their or their faith systems or their belief in in the book so maybe we can talk a little bit about that because i think that is a wonderful aspect and and this is something that i've actually personally experienced working in tribal communities so you know their interconnection with nature the the way they are you know completely involved with their surrounding the way they interact with their surrounding i mean we are all urban animals right you and i we are pretty much urban animals we are yeah. organized we are in concrete jungles but when when you go in this now nor am i trying to romanticize that life because you know ambedkar was very clear you know ambedkar's view was the the villages are the cesspools of mediocrity etc you know everybody should urbanize and stuff like that and and i get it and i'm pretty much on those sides but in spite of that i have to say that that you know what i loved about the book was you know you you paid such minute detail into how they worship why they worship the way they worship so could you talk a little bit about that too so you know uh, 
I think over the last ten books, I have created about twenty characters, and I think uh, uh, I still like to live that character, even though I may not uh, be doing it in th- that in the in the way of, that a method actor does. Maybe when I when I get down to writing, I make very minute points about uh, how the two people would be talking to each other the husband or the wife and obviously the each character for me is a representative of a thought process so if one person is too aggressive if one person is too aggressive against the britishers the other would have a voice of reason and would possibly say that you know we have also benefited uh, by virtue of uh, being under britishers so i think that provides an interesting conflict which to my knowledge has existed since eternity so even today you know if if somebody is a die hard modi fan and uh, his best friend is not i think debate should happen upon reason and upon fact which is what i try to do with my characters also in the book so while yes i mean uh, they have it it is it is a given that the adivasi community would be devout nature worshippers their practices would be very innate when the challenge of converting to a new faith comes obviously you know uh, at the core of it would be a threat to their existing practices and how would they treat this threat or how how would they view this threat so i think that was the crux of my i my uh conversations between different characters when all of this drama was unfolding in the book and um i'm sure the you know like uh, the thing is why every generation feels that the challenge they are facing is uh peculiar to that generation broadly human challenges have been the same across history so i think uh, many of the adivasi families today would be facing similar dilemmas when it comes to conversion many would be wanting to reconvert many would be would be uh, co-living the two faiths as in worshiping going to the to the shiv temple performing the shiv uh, you know performing the shiv pujan and at the same time following some of the innate festivals which are very intrinsic to the adivasi religion for example there is sarhul which is celebrated in april which uh, now the beauty of, about hindu traditions and about hindu customs is that while you know the names of the festivals may change across country baisakhi may be celebrated by a different name with bihu or some other name in assam in the same adivasi areas barring a difference of one or two days it could be it could be before the day when other parts of the country celebrate that festival but a similar festivity is observed around the same time so which largely shows the connection of the the broader sanatan samaj and that is where the linkages can be very clearly gauged and seen so all those people who are uh, you know who try to distinguish between hindu and hindutva they should realize that the you know whether it is pongal whether it is uh, baisakhi there are so many festivals which barring a difference of a day or two is celebrated by different names across the country and which includes the tribal population so this is something which even you know forget those trying to create a difference between hindu and hindutvadi even those trying to create a difference between hindus and tribal should take note of this and stop their uh, propaganda yeah 
I agree. I think, you know, Rajiv Malhotra ji used a very good word for that. You know, he always said that Hinduism is like an open architecture. It has rules, but, you know, it tries to absorb and assimilate a lot of differing points of view, differing worldviews inside it. And sometimes I think the monotheistic mind is not able to maybe, maybe fathom that. And it creates, uh, for the monotheist, I think it creates cognitive dissonance. And that cognitive dissonance maybe leads the monotheist to maybe convert you. The, while the Hindu might assimilate it, right? So you come up with a new tradition and you come up with a new God maybe. And as long as your God does not come in between my God, I'll take your God over too. And you know I'll celebrate your God. And I'll celebrate it with maybe that much gusto as I would do in the my very case. Fact, and, the very fact that a Shiva or a Krishna may have 108 different names by itself explains that there are, you know, like for Hindus, such is the 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 you know uh, i mean uh, there are so many layers to every situation there are so many ways of looking at the same situation so i think honestly you know extreme rigidity anyway does not suit the hindu religion it's all about flexibility principle flexibility i would say principle the diversion principle flexibility and pr principle accommodation yeah one last question because even a live viewer has asked this question. So what do you make uh, about the whole Ambedkar idea of urbanization and, you know, urbanization would kill caste and I think urbanization would be the biggest bolster or booster that would be there maybe for the Adivasi community. Maybe we'll keep that as the last question because, you know, in line of the Zamindari exploitation that you talk about in the, in the, in the book. So, so what did you make of uh, Ambedkar's thoughts there? See, any leader may have some great thoughts, but not all of them may hold uh, at every point uh, in history, may, may hold true in every point in history. So while uh, Ambedkar uh, ji had a great suggestion during partition that uh, for partition to be successful, there should be 100% transfer of population both ways. I think on this particular aspect, I would not entirely agree with him because urbanization as a solution to ending the caste system would be a little, um, would be, would be, I think uh, it would be a too, too much of a quick fix solution because most of these, uh, most of these villagers would anyway, you know, be the new occupants in urban centers. I think politics has a big role to play. If you ask me, Politics has a big role to play in, in undoing the, the old caste system. And that is where I, you know, I think uh, if one top leader had made a genuine effort, maybe, you know, I mean, politicians are very smart. They probably realize that this effort would go in vain. So they, maybe that is the reason nobody entered this zone. But I think the effort to create a casteless society today has to be a political move, a politically supported move. But unfortunately, like I say, I mean, at a time when people are insisting on uh, caste-based reservations more and more, and there is sadly, a, a, you know, a rush for some of the forward caste to now be included in the reserved category. Uh, you know, I don't know how we can do away with the caste system. So it's a very sad system. So I'll tell you, I we belong to the Kaist community. Kaist community is a very small 1%. Uh, it, it is one, roughly 1, 1.5% of the population of both UP and Bihar. And it's supposed to be a very upward mobile, upwardly mobile, educated community. 
Now, six months ago, I was appalled when there was a move by, you know, by certain sections in Uttar Pradesh to include the caste community in the reserved category. But I'm glad the community itself opposed it. But what I see very disturbing is that over the years, instead of economic criteria being the only criteria for reservation, instead of, uh, you know, the economic criteria somewhere uh, taking center stage, there is a rush among the forward caste to now avail of the benefits of uh, you know caste-based reservation, which is slightly worrying. And I don't see in the near future that that tendency or that trend ending anytime soon. Yeah, I think uh, you know the debate on caste is evergreen in India. I don't know what will end caste. I mean, some people say capitalism eventually, free markets, and you know, giving people the opportunity to uh, to to make money in rightful ways, industrialization and all those other things might eventually deal with. And for that, maybe urbanization is one of the parts of it. You don't have to be moving into an urban center for it. Nowadays, obviously, development happens in other uh, other parts of the country too. So, so yeah, I guess, I guess the jury is out on that. Let's see how it happens. But Tuin, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. So before we wrap today's discussion up, you know, any last words? Well, I'm honored to be on your show because, like I said, um, you know, this must be probably my ninth or the tenth interview on my book on Birsa Munda. But very few, um, you know, uh, on very few occasions have I come across a host who's, who was so well versed with a book. Uh, and like I said, for a writer, God lies in the details. So I love people who who believe in detailing. I love people who actually get into the the the, the get into the detail of everything so it was an absolute pleasure on your show and uh, you know keep up the good work i have uh, seen some of your interviews and uh, the detailing again was something which uh, was very impressive and uh, i think we need more conversations of this nature which which uh, highlight the fallacy of the caste system because like i said uh, despite my my very clear political ideology. I think this is something which all political parties should at some point of time get together to, to end, I mean, uh, the caste system. Totally agree. Uh, Tuhin, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Uh, uh, and I say this when I was reading the book, I, I, I love the way you've written the book. The storyline is amazing. It's a very gripping book. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed them. Obviously, I, I, I love the way you presented part one. I think part one and the tussle, you know, between the missionaries and the zamindars and the whole cultural milieu changes that's just brilliant so guys we'll wrap today's discussion up uh so the book is available in hard copy and kindle both so if you go into the description of the and podcast doesn't matter for all your viewers this is the book it's yeah. a gorgeous book it has saffron all over it so that should <laughs> be uh, <laughs> So, in, in fact, I was very particular that, you know, saffron should be the, the dominant color on the cover because somewhere it, it carries a lot of positive energy. So, so as, as you saw it, guys, please go and buy the book. Again, the link to buy the book is in the description of the podcast. So, if you're a Kindle reader like I am, you can buy the Kindle copy or you can buy the hard copy 
Also, if you want to support the Chawak podcast, please subscribe to this channel, like the video, leave your comments over there, and do buy the book. And once you buy the book and read it, do leave a comment uh, on Twitter, uh, you know, and tag uh, Tuvan in that. I have left his uh, Twitter handle also in the description of the podcast. And please support the Chawak podcast either by becoming a member on YouTube or on subscription on Patreon or your or the merchandise or your UPI donations. I will come back next time with another interesting discussion until. Till then, namaste. Take care. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Namaskar.